poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness. Now, nestled in the foothills of a mountain range, Greatness Village is the promised land the Chasing Poker Greatness community calls home. Here, you'll find elite teachers, aspiring pros, and primitive tribal warriors who grew tired of their old ways and found a better path. These are the stories of Greatness Village on Chasing Poker Greatness. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. Today, I am joined by villager Scott Sade. He's been playing poker for about 20 years, started in my hometown of Atlanta, has lived in Colorado for the last 11 in, uh, in the mountains with his wife and three dogs. He owned his own business as a glassblower for 13 years. He went back to school for a degree in economics and philosophy, graduating very shortly. Mr. Scott Sade, welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you doing? Doing well, Brad. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. As you're probably aware, typical way to start this show, let's tell the listener about your poker journey. Sure. Yeah, that sounds good. Um... I mean, my poker journey started when I was just a really little kid. Um, all the games that I can remember playing as I was growing up were with my dad and they were always card based. So whatever it was that we were playing, if it was gin rummy or if it was uh, this game called Casino that my grandma, his mom uh, had taught him, it was always card based. And then, of course, you get into five card draw and the super easy to learn variants of poker. Um, and uh, yeah, as a teenager, had little home games with friends and things like that. And that was when Hold'em started getting popular, kind of around the moneymaker era. And uh, how old are yeah. you? How old are you, Scott? I'm 35. 35. So we're about the same age. Um, well, uh, I'm being generous. I'm a few years older than you. We can, <laughs> we can round down. That's okay. Um, so growing up, what was it about cards and, you know, your dad? Did he love playing games? Like, why did you, why did cards resonate with you all so much? Yeah, my dad was a really, really smart guy. He loved playing games. He, he was the kind of guy who every Sunday was doing the New York Times crossword puzzle, and he would take such pride in finishing it entirely. And he, he would, his thing is that he would do it in pen. So he could never change his answer. He had to be very sure of his answer to write them down. So that was his thing. And, uh, my mom always tells stories about like when they would play Scrabble, she would only play with him if he would spot her a hundred points. So games were just his thing and uh, cards were just a natural extension of that as easy to take with you anywhere. And there were so many different variations of games to play. So it was just a, just a really easy thing to, to do together. I was an only child too. So like my parents were much of my uh, companionship as a kid. So um, there was a lot of time spent at our lake house down at Lake Oconee, which I'm sure you're aware of. And, uh, yeah, we, we would just play a lot of card games down there. 
What do you think you took genetically from your dad as it relates to games? Uh, just the love for strategy. Like there's just something super interesting and endlessly complex about playing card games of all different kinds, you know, like especially poker. Um, I just, it's not just the number of variants, but the, the deep theoretical side of it, it's like a rabbit hole that just keeps my brain satisfied. It just, I just never run out of curiosity about them. And I think my dad was really similar. Yeah. So once you get introduced to poker, uh, you know, moneymaker boom and all that, where, what happened next? Well, I mean, like many people during that period of time, like we took to it like a, like a duck to water. Me and my friends started a home game and, um, we had a huge group of friends that would play probably like a rotation of 25 or 30 different people who would come in and out of our little like one, two game back in like 2004 to 2006 era. And, uh, yeah, so we started playing a ton, um, just amongst friends and the game slowly got bigger and bigger, um, just in number of people, not in stakes. We always played pretty low stakes, but you know, back then, Atlanta's changed a lot these days from what I understand, although I don't go back there too often. But back then, there was, like, some reasonably dangerous, like, places in Atlanta. And uh, we ended up actually getting robbed at gunpoint twice um, for the money that we had at our home game. I'm, I'm pretty sure we were, like, set up by another home game from whom we were inadvertently taking uh, – players because we weren't taking a rake or anything we were just playing for the fun of it but i think we were inadvertently taking their player pool and uh yeah so that was how poker in atlanta culminated i ended up having to stop playing because there was just no access to safe places to play anymore so right around 2006 or 2007 i stopped playing altogether for probably like seven or eight years or something like that didn't play any poker at all Tell me about getting robbed at gunpoint. How did that feel? That was a pretty low point in my life. Um, we had two tables full of people playing. I was actually dealing the cards that night just for tips. Um, and we had two guys burst through the door, dragging our other friend with them who had a big knot on his forehead. And apparently they had run up on him while he was having a cigarette outside and pistol whipped him and just like knocked the daylights out of him and dragged him inside. And um, this this next part's like the most traumatic for me was that one of the other people, the guy whose house we were at, he, his girlfriend at the time was pregnant with their kid. And they must have known she was going to be there because they rushed straight upstairs. One of them stayed downstairs. The other one rushed upstairs and grabbed her. And they actually put a gun to her pregnant stomach and brought her downstairs. And like that was the end of any resistance that anybody was willing to put up. We just gave them the money and all of our cell phones and all of our wallets and all of our everything. Um, and the reason that I suspect that we were set up by this other game is that the guy who ran this other game was at our poker game that day. And at my table that I was dealing from, and as soon as these guys burst in and we all stood up from these tables, this guy dropped his wallet straight down his pants, like just immediately without any hesitation, just dropped his wallet. So I don't know if like that was to keep them from like, 
they didn't know who he was specifically, like maybe a friend hired them or something like that. I'm really like, obviously I'm not privy to any of the details of that side of it, but there was something very suspicious about what had happened with him. And, and like, we were all just super, nobody knew what to do. You know, like, what do you do in that situation? You can't call the police. Like the police are just as likely to come down on you as try to do anything about having been assaulted. Um, so yeah, we, we found a bag of our cell phones in the woods where they had fled and dropped them. So a few people got some of their cell phones and wallets back or whatever, but I didn't. And I just got a ride home and, and picked my life back up and got my new ID and all the things you have to do when something like that happens and just, just moved on from poker for a while. That is an insane story. I've never in my whole poker journey, never experienced anything like that. I haven't been robbed at gunpoint, um, pointing a gun at the stomach of pregnant woman is wow. That that's, that's insane. Yeah, I think I tried to play one more time about a month later at another friend's game. And less than half an hour after I left, their game got robbed at gunpoint as well. And that was when I was just like, you know, I'm just done until there is a safe way to play this game. Like, this isn't worth it, you know? Yeah, I've played in a lot of home games. I mean, that's that's crazy that another one got robbed. I've never actually played at a home game that got robbed. Uh, you know, I've played... I've played at a home game that got busted. Uh, I wasn't there when it did get busted. But yeah, never been at one where it's been robbed. A lot of the time, the games that I've played in, um, multiple players were packing heat. I know that we've had off-duty police officers surveilling the area, uh, extensive security cameras and networks set up um, just in case. But yeah, lots of precautions taking, but I'm taken, but I mean, somebody busts through the door with guns ready to go, you know, please just take everything I have. I <laughs> just take, take it all. I, I got nothing. I got no yeah. gun. I think honestly having a firearm in that situation, like the last thing in the world I'd want to be involved in is a shootout. Um, just not worth it, but it's crazy. The risks that yeah, poker players take in these situations where, you know, they don't have an alternative or the, the only alternative I guess is to not play poker, but that's something that, yeah, most people are just not going to, not going to do. We were just a bunch of kids, man. Like we were barely 18 at the time. Like we were just really enjoyed playing poker. We, I, I know personally, I had little to no like vision of any security issues, you know? And again, it wasn't my game per se. Like it was definitely my friend's game and I just kind of helped them do it. And uh, I was really interested in poker. So these security decisions weren't mine to make, but for sure, like, I don't think any of us really thought something like that was going to happen. And now that I'm older, I have much more of a perspective on that. And I know what people will do for money. Like people can get very desperate when it surrounds like anything to do with money. And I take way more precautions these days. I mostly play at the casino and, you know, we have a little home game amongst very close friends, but we don't play for big stakes and we don't bring cash most of the time. Yeah, that's pretty much the way it's got to be. Yeah. Um, and I can certainly see how that could sour your appetite for poker for a while, uh, having gone through that experience. So, you know, after you played a month later and then that game got robbed, uh, what, what were the next steps in your poker journey? Well, I had a 
I don't know. I don't want to say a tough childhood. Like I was very supported as a kid by my parents. They were very supportive people, but I went through a lot as a kid uh, with some like drug addiction issues and depression. And I was looking at this time to just start over and find my place in life and get away from some of the people that I had always known my whole life that knew my past and just and just start anew. Um, so when I was 18, I moved out to Colorado. Um, and the whole idea was to just start over. Like I had a couple of friends that went with me that were looking to do similar things with their lives, just find a new group of friends and find a new scene to be in. And I'd never even been to Colorado before I moved there. I, I just was like, anywhere has got to be better than, than here right now. Um, and so I moved to Colorado and at that time I was actually going to community college, um, but I was super uninterested in being at school at that time. I just was for me just looking to do something different than continue the same school grind that I'd been on for my, for the last, like what, 16 years or something like that in my life. And so um, I was just like starting with like full schedule of classes and then I dropped two or three of them and just try to like get by doing the minimum. Um, and I actually broke my ankle that first winter when my friends and I decided that it'd be a really great idea on the first real snow of the year in Colorado to go out just us people from Georgia to the mountains and go sledding in the back country of Colorado. And of course, I managed to break my ankle really, really badly. I broke it in like six different places. I ended up with like a prosthetic joint in my foot. How did uh, you break your ankle <laughs> sledding? Yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, we were, it was blizzarding at night in the dark and we were Perfect. sledding down. Prime, those, prime conditions for inexperienced sledding. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. This is actually a great story. So I, 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 we had gone down the hill a few times without any issues and I was going down and I felt myself slip down one more set of hills than, than I had previously gone down. And as I did that, I just hit a rock down at the bottom of the next hill. And, you know, it was literally dark out in a blizzard and it was probably about 15 degrees below zero and it was windy. So it was really disorienting already without that. And I hit this rock and I tried to stand up and, and climb back up this hill and I just fell over immediately. And I called up to my friend through the darkness. I could see the headlights, you know, up on the hill from where our car was. And I was like, I can't walk. I don't know what's going on. I can't walk. And I, I still, in this point, I don't know if it was shock or if it, it, you know, if I just, the pain hadn't hit me yet, but like, I just was standing there and he like made his way down to where I was. And I was like, dude, I don't know what's going on. You know, my foot is starting to hurt. Uh, I can't walk. I fell over when I tried. And he was like, well, can you like, you know, walk out of here? You know, there was another way that was flatter kind of where the road bent around to meet it. And I was like, I don't know, I can try. And I tried and I just fell over again. And I was like, I can't, man. And he was like, all right, hang tight. I'm going to go move the car and I'm going to come back and I'm going to help you out of here on this sled. And it's literally like the sled is a boogie board. The sled was just this tiny little boogie board thing that we were using. And so it was about 250 yards, I would say, to the road, the flat way. So it was a pretty good distance. And my friend pulled the car around and parked it. And I laid down on this sled and my buddy dragged me about 200 yards on this freaking sled with my legs bouncing behind me. The pain was like starting to come on because uh, I think my body was like starting to react to the trauma. 
And uh, we get to the last 50 yards and it's like slightly uphill up an embankment to the roadway. And he, and he couldn't do it. He had just, he was out of steam. And, and so we had another friend with us. So he went to the car. We had two other friends with us, actually. He went to the car to try to get one of them to help. And I'm just laying there in the dark and the snow is starting to cover me up. And I'm starting to get really worried that he's yeah. not going to find me again in uh -huh. this freaking snow in the middle of the dark. And so I went into full blown, just like survival mode. And I started screaming, I'm not going to die out here and started army dragging myself with just my arms, pulling my legs behind me as if they'd been blown off or something <laughs> all the way to the car, just screaming to myself that I'm not going to die out here. And, uh, and yeah, so I dragged myself up this embankment the last 50 yards or so and up to the car. And it turns out that one of the other kids that was with us, because we were barely adults, had passed out from altitude sickness. And so they were dealing with this kid who was literally unconscious in the back seat and me who had, you know, been left out in this field to figure it out, I guess. And so it was took us an hour and a half to get down to the hospital. And uh, yeah, it turned out I'd really severely broken my ankle and I actually required, I broke my toe too and required a prosthetic joint replacement in my toe. Wow. Wow. Well, it was pretty crazy. That that sounds crazy. What is altitude sickness? So I think it was just a pure lack of oxygen. He, his body just shut down due to lack of oxygen because of the altitude that we were at when we were out in the backcountry. Oh, wow. So he was just a Georgia boy, not used to being out in the mountains. And I think just like, I, I don't even know, like there was so much going on with me that I didn't even get a whole lot of chance to ask about that at the time. But I, either he was so hyperventilating from the activity of going up and down the hill with the sled because it was tough to walk all the way back up the hill in the snow in the blizzard um or um when he heard about me maybe that was like traumatizing to him in some way i really don't know exactly what happened with him he woke up almost immediately as we started going down the hill um i'm sure his body just like normalized his oxygen levels and he just popped back up so yeah so Thus far in your journey, poker's been ruined for you. Sledding has probably been ruined for you. I don't um, sled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not much into sledding these days, Mr. Say. No. Um, so tell me, after you know you get your ankle looked at, what what was life like in Colorado? I'm hoping we had some upswings in there. This was the best upswing. Uh, this is when the best, in retrospect, upswing happened. So. I ended up having to drop out of college, which I was pumped about at the time. I was like, oh, yes, I'm just going to sit at home for the next three months and do nothing, which sounded great to me uh, at the time. And I was, uh, you know, I've always been, um, well, aside from when I was dealing with, with, um, with some drug problems, I did get sober for about four years there. But once I had kind of moved past a lot of those issues and dealt with some of the emotional problems surrounding that part time of my life, I went back to smoking cannabis. And it's always been a big part of my life since then, um, a really positive part of my life since then, which I'm grateful to be able to say. Um, and so through that, I started really getting into glassware, the different glassware involved with cannabis. And uh, I was one of the people who would collect it before it was really like interesting or something that anybody did. Like most people were trying to hide the amount of glassware that they had at this point in time. Cannabis wasn't like particularly legal and 
definitely not societally accepted the way that it is even just like maybe 15 years later now um and so i found a community online of other people who also collected uh glassware for cannabis usage and it was the only place that people were linked together who did this it was a very disparate hobby um that you really only did if you were actually passionate about the art like there was no money in it or anything like that there was no um, prestige in having a collection or anything like that at the time. It was simply like, you know, this, uh, this lifestyle and this culture was really important to you. And this is where, where you identified with it. And so I found this group and through that group, I found an opportunity to move to Berkeley, California and start apprenticing, uh, under a glass blower there and learn, you know, from the ground up, he had all the tools and everything that would be required to learn because that's the biggest issue with getting into glass blowing is there's really high overhead. Um, the learning curve is part of it, but really just the overhead alone keeps most people from truly being able to become a glass blower um, the way that they might like to. How so much I, over I, overhead are we talking here? I mean, a, a, a proper starting setup if you're really going to try to make a run at things. Well, you need a place to do it. So, you know, if you don't have a garage where somebody's okay with you setting up a glass blowing studio, then you have to pay, you know, anywhere between 500 and $1,000 a month to rent a spot. Um, and then the equipment and the raw material startup cost is probably around like five to $7,000, just depending on what you're willing to start with, you know, um, you can be really limited by your equipment. Um, so like there's a big difference between the you know miles you get out of a $3,000 torch versus a $700 torch, um, if that makes any sense. For sure. Um, same thing with like kiln space. We use kilns to anneal the glass, which uh, creates structural stability within the glass. And uh, you know a small kiln might cost $1,500, but you can only put a handful of things in there at a time. And it's really hard to make money if you have to you know, it's kiln cycles. It's like an eight hour cycle to shut it down. So you, you can't just be like making two or three pieces at a time and, and survive that way, unless you're making extremely valuable pieces. Um, so kiln space is another limiting factor. So you have to, you know, get a kiln large enough to work out of. So yeah, I'd say like five to $7,000 is a good, good startup number. And, and again, like most people starting up don't know if they're going to be able to if they're going to enjoy glass, if they're going to be able to sustain, you know, uh, business growth through it. So like for most people who are interested in glass blowing, that's a pretty cost prohibitive number, even though it might not sound like a lot to say, just like a business person starting some sort of business with employees and stuff. Um, I think the market for especially pipeware back then was so um, unknown and just like uh, really underground, which is a lot of what appealed to me about it. Um, Why? That why did why, the uh, un, un, what is why is the underground a, a appeal to you mr said because it, it seems like that is a little bit of a theme here yeah it is it's always been a theme in my life i've always been kind of a you know now that i'm in econ economics i would call it a contrarian investor so i i've always been a bit of a contrarian investor um in that i see value um in places that people just can't really understand without understanding the culture and other factors that are uh, much more hard to to quantify around them. Um, you know, I think it kind of goes along with similar with tattoo culture and skate culture, both of which I've been a part of at different times in my life. Um, but I am, I've always been interested in counterculture. Um, there's always been something just not totally mainstream about the way that I view the world. Um, 
I think a lot of that comes from my dad. He was uh, kind of a hippie and so was my mom to some extent. So like, I think, you know, they, I grew up in the South and they were non-religious. So I was the only non-religious person that I knew. Like I, I was the only person who I, who grew up in a non-religious household that I knew. Um, and I think a lot of that just like heavily influenced who I became and the way that I think about the world. Um, I just never really saw myself taking the, what, you know, maybe what might be called the typical path in life where you just like go to school, get a job, get married, have kids right away, those types of things. Like I was more interested in exploring and seeing what there was out there in the world. So, so yeah, th there was just something that resonated me about it. You know, I considered it protest art the cannabis pipes, uh, you know, I considered that protest art because I considered um, and still do consider the prohibition of cannabis to be like a travesty to human civilization. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a medicine for so many and it can be such a healing thing given the right context. Um, just, and just like every prescription medication is not meant for everybody, cannabis is not meant for everybody, but I believe that that adult should have access to the plants that that were put here on the earth for us, you know? Um, and uh, so for me, all of those things were factors in why um, it became such a, an important thing in my own eyes. Um, I also saw that, uh, that cannabis was becoming more mainstream, that that legalization was somewhere on the horizon. And I felt that, uh, I felt strongly that being in early on glass pipes was the same thing as being in early in any other cannabis business, that there was a lot of money to be made uh, by positioning yourself there and having some sort of following as legalization progressed. Yeah. So as you're embarking on this career as a glassblower and, you know, as cannabis is, you know, becoming legalized and regulated uh, just more and more and more and more, um, how did that work out as far as your career? It worked out awesome. I, I only stayed at that first apprenticeship for a couple of months. It wasn't really what um, it were, was advertised to be, but so much in the cannabis industry is not what people make it out to be. It's very much a wild west uh, type industry with, especially at the time, very loose regulations, if any. And, and so I, I but I, what <laughs> I did there- This all sounds was, very familiar. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it parallels poker so tightly for mm -hmm. sure. Online poker specifically. Um, and so I, what I did make through this, period of time, short period of time in Berkeley, California was connections. Um, and that's what I've always been good at. My network is strong. Um, I love meeting new people. I make friends quickly. I think that's part of being an only child was you, you really have to like be a friend to have some friends. You know, there was never a brother or sister around to keep you occupied. So if you wanted to do things, you had to have friends. So uh, me and this guy, uh, John, John Dosa, he and I built our first studio together and I moved from Berkeley, California to outside of San Rafael, California, which is in the North Bay. And this was where I got my opportunity to live in the Redwood Forest. And I actually lived in a house that was in a portion of the populated Redwood Forest. And it was, it was incredible. It was a really incredible time in my life. And we built a studio in a carport in his driveway where we like screwed metal corrugated siding to the sides of the carport and then ran out of money and had no ventilation and had no, we used uh, tarps to close in the other side. And then we had uh, one side just open air because that's where our torches ventilated out of. And there were times where I would wake up in the morning at six in the morning to the sound of rain outside. 
and I would jump in my car and rush up to his house to find my torch and all of my tools under an inch of water on my bench. Jeez. And, you know, that was just how it was. I mean, like, it sounds like E, but life was good, man. Life that was just such a carefree and fun time in my life. And I was just glass was blossoming. Um, social media really catalyzed the glass industry. It really made linking up with these random people throughout the world who also found themselves interested in this degenerate, what we call it a degenerate art. You know, that's kind of the like funny misnomer that we give it in in glass in glass blowing like we, we were always shunned by traditional glass makers so they would all call us degenerates so we took that and made it our own and we were degenerate artists and uh and so the internet connected us all together and built this incredible network and now um glass is massive you know i i have some of the people who i credit the most of my learning there's a glass blower named yushin goins and, you know, he sold pieces for hundreds of thousands of dollars, single pipes for hundreds of thousands of dollars and does regularly, you know, sell, sell his work for that. So people have really been able to like see the value of these protest uh, pieces for what they are. Um, once once um, the legalization side of it became easier to navigate. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I started a studio and ultimately found Yushin and he taught me and I moved to Oregon for a while and I lived in Washington for a while and Southern California for a while. I just, I was moving all around. It was just me and my dog Taja and we just would jump in the car and we'd go to the next place and we'd stay there for a while and work with everybody we could. And my, my whole goal at this point in my life was to just soak up as much knowledge in as short a period of time as I could, because I knew eventually I was going to be ready to settle down in one place and it was going to be harder to gain that knowledge if you weren't willing to travel as easily to where other glass blowers who are more knowledgeable than yourself were. And at this time, because people had been so underground and, you know, we all took on different monikers. My moniker is Tricky, T-R-I-K-K-Y. And like, that's what I sign all my glass with because we were worried about the feds finding us having, making pipes. Like it was not legal. Uh, whatever anybody tells you a hundred percent to this day, uh, pipes for cannabis use are not federally legal. And um, so we were all worried about that, but because things seem to be opening up and the Fed seems to be, seem to be taking a more passive stance on it, um, glassblowers were so excited to have one another in their studios. And I learned incredible technique from some of these people who had just been in their, their studios in the back of their houses, slowly developing all these new techniques that the world had never seen and never been shared. And it was just this beautiful time in glass blowing where we were all just freely sharing as much knowledge as we as we could with one another. So, um, yeah, eventually I ended up settling back in Colorado. I love California. Um, it was just too expensive for me. I couldn't live there. I, I lived in a tiny I, I lived in a house uh, that had Jerry Garcia's old toilet and sink in it because the owner of the house used to be the house manager of their place when they lived in Northern California. And so we would have these crazy parties and Jerry Garcia's kids would show up and take a bunch of acid and get naked and, you know, all these things. Um, but it was like, I lived in a six by nine foot room with no closet. It was like $700 and that was, you know, 12, 13 years ago. Um, so, you know, probably be a couple thousand dollars for that room, something like that now. Um, and so I just couldn't afford it. So uh, Colorado was the best place that I'd been that I felt like I could afford and I knew something about it, and had some connections there already. And so uh, back to Colorado, I went 
And that was actually where um, my first wife and I met and we got married. Nice. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop and you don't know what to do, one man Coach Brad Wilson. has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds. Nuffle. Available now. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash nuffle. Rated R. 100 NL player, former Sergeant Elijah Shears. Before I got Nuffle, I had run into a lot of dog bets. And I think once you play a certain amount of hands, you know there's something wrong with our opponent's strategies, but you don't know how to play to maximize EV against it. And it's very frustrating. I looked at the document and I couldn't believe that I paid money for it. I actually doubted that it could provide value because it was so brief. But since then, it's repaid me just over and over and over again. And it's one of the most consistent money makers built into my strategy that sheds light on just how bad your opponents are. And it took me 20 minutes to perfect it. And it's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm speechless. It's just that good. The simplicity of it is part of it being a masterpiece. <laughs> Nuffle. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash courses. So yeah. move back to Colorado in the midst of your glass blowing career. So after you move back to Colorado, uh, you, you said first wife. So I'm assuming that there is more than one wife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yes, tell me, yes. tell me like once you move back to Colorado and you're embarking, you know, on this sort of new life, new journey, what happened after that? Well, my wife and I, my first wife and I were very young when we got married. We were about 23 when we got married. We were college sweethearts um, and life just changed. There was no like massive thing. Neither of us were like this really terrible person to one another. I mean, like, you know, breakups are tough and like there were bad times too, but like I wish her nothing but the best. And I'm sure she's very happy to be doing her own thing now. So we just became different people as we got older, as I'm sure anybody listening to this who is, you know, older than 21 probably has a lot of perspective on you change a lot between 20 and 30. Um, and so uh, we got divorced. And that was actually around when poker kind of came back into my life, I went to Las Vegas for um, a trade show, glass blowing trade show. And the person who I was sharing a booth with had a guy that he was employing to watch the booth while while he would be running around, you know, meeting other people and doing things. And this guy's roommate was also into poker and had come out to the trade show just to check it all out. He was into cannabis and into poker. And he invited me back to a home game when we got back into Colorado. And uh, this was maybe six or seven years ago now. And uh, we started playing uh, a home game in Colorado. Um, and it was just little money. You know, we would play like 25 cent, 50 cent, something like that. And we would literally play until like four in the morning and till 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 one one to two people had all the money you know it was almost like a tournament or in that way where we just didn't stop playing until until one or two people had all the money and uh and that really just sparked my my love for poker again um and uh while i had been continuing to blow glass um i wasn't sure 
that I wanted to do it forever. I'm very passionate about glass. Um, I always have been, always will be. I still have my home studio set up here at my house in the mountains. and I won't ever give that up. Um, but one thing that I realized, uh, well, there's a couple of things I realized really. Um, one is I have an autoimmune condition uh, called ankylosing spondylitis and it's a form of arthritis. And I was diagnosed when I was 12 um, and it became a really limiting factor in my glass blowing. Um, it was really hard for me to produce in the amount that I needed to produce in uh, when my back would really start hurting because you're hovering your hands at arm's length in front of you for eight, 10, 12 hours a day, spinning glass. Um, and it just, it, the posture that it can put your back in um, can be really tough, even at the best of times. Um, it was really difficult for me at the worst of times. Um, and then secondly was more of uh, just a lifestyle thing as I was getting older and my priorities were changing and I could see myself wanting to settle down and have a family um, and the lifestyle of a glassblower can be very nomadic and the income can be very, uh, extremely variable. Um, there were, there were times where it was just really, really sparse sales and times where it's like, I couldn't make enough glass to, to sell to people. Um, and so, uh, I had met Chloe, who's now my wife. And at that time, you know, we, I, I fell in love with her hard. Like I, I knew she was the one. She, it took a little more convincing on her end, uh, but I stuck by it. I always told her, she was like, I just don't know if I'm ready for a relationship like that. You know, like she had just gotten back into dating after taking some time for herself. And um, I just kept telling her, like, I totally understand and I respect you for whatever decision you make, but I think we're really great together and I'm willing to wait until you know what I know about us. And I, I can remember saying that to her probably five or six times in the first year you know uh of being together and we just we didn't ever break up you know i think there was something about my confidence um in the relationship that made her feel very comforted that that uh that we were good and so um things got a little bit more serious with us and we started talking about moving in together um and i had this house in the mountains that i've been living at for at the time about eight years or nine years um and she was going to move in with me up in the mountains um and because of the income we knew we wanted to have kids we knew we wanted to have at least two kids um i've always wanted to be a father and she she's been a nanny she was a nanny for 10 years she's a pilates instructor and a health coach now but she loves kids i mean like beyond loves kids so she was just built to be a mother and so we knew we wanted to have kids and i i took that year to work as hard as i could blowing glass i i standardized a product line i worked really hard to build leads of orders and set up you know order after order after order so every day when i came into work i knew exactly what i was doing that day and what i needed to produce and how much i would make doing it and after that year i made just shy of a hundred thousand dollars and it just you know it, it you i'm sure know a lot of this yourself brad owning your own business about a third of your costs go back into your business you know it, it takes money to make money and uh, it's not the same as getting a paycheck when you own your own business you know you have to maintain uh, raw materials and you know uh, upkeep of you know equ equipment depreciation things like that all these things are factors in a business and there just wasn't going to be enough you know she wanted to stay home with the kids and i wanted that for her um so we made the decision together that i would go back to school which is something i'd always wanted to do i'd always i i knew that it was something that i had left unfinished for myself 
Um, so at 32, I went back to school and I started at community college. Um, and I actually had a great experience. I, I just, you know, I love learning. It's the same thing that drives me with poker. Um, there's just something deeply curious about, you know, for me, like I just, I, I'm just intensely curious as a person. Um, and so uh, I went back to school and I ultimately uh, was able to transfer into CU Boulder, which is the closest uh, University of Colorado at Boulder, which is the closest um, university to me after I graduated with my associates from a community college. And I've worked really hard. I've managed to maintain a 4.0 GPA through three years of college, which was took a lot of dedication. But I, I promised my wife, you know, now wife that I would do everything I could to provide for our kids. And I knew I was a little behind the curve being a bit older, having graduated school or go, going to graduate school. And so um, I took it very seriously. I still take it very seriously. Um, and yeah, that kind of uh, brings us to where we are now. I'm in between semesters in the summertime and this next two semesters are my final two semesters. I'm at an internship currently. Nice. So you got about one year to go. Just about, yeah, maybe nine months once it's all said and done. Yeah, congratulations, man. That that's that's quite the story, and that's really really cool. Thanks. Uh, so you guys are going to be starting a family sometime in the near future, too, right? It, it can't happen soon enough for my wife. She's uh, she's chomping at the bit. I think uh, I think we'd be having kids before I was graduated if I left it up to her. Um, <laughs> but I made her a promise that as soon as I was graduated and and I was able to get a job, that we would work on having a family. And I'm really looking forward to that. I mean, that's such a that's always been the step that's really important to me. I just, my mom and dad waited later in life as well. My mom was like 33 when she had me and I was an only child. And so I think that framework always stuck with me, um, that having financial security allowed you to have the family life that you wanted. Um, and so for me, that's always been kind of a guiding light. Um, and so that to me was what I was trying to achieve before having a family. Yeah, and I, I think you touched on something earlier too about how much you change and you know for the listener who's around 30 years old or so just uh spoiler alert I, I think you change a ton from 20 to 30 and you change a ton from 30 to 40 as well which at least that's my personal life experience i think that life is just constant change and when you're starting a family it's important that you share the same values right However, as you change, you know, values change as well. And so you can find yourself in a situation where, yeah, the person you were when you're early 20s is just not the same person that you are in your early 30s. Your values have shifted. And, you know, that's going back to, you know, your previous marriage as well. This is something that that happens. And that's one of the major causes of relationships ending. Um, but it's quite difficult on children when, you know, they're born into a uh, situation where you have one set of values and then those change over, you know, 10 years or so, right? It, it would be, it feels like you, you serve them better when things are more solid, right? You have a deeper understanding of who you are, what you stand for, the things that you prioritize and all that stuff. And, you know, the reality is, is like you learn that through life experience. You learn that uh, as your brain matures um, as a human being. So, yeah, I think it's a strong, smart play. So tell Chloe to stick with it. You know, just not not that much longer to go. Um, no, she's very happy. She's happy too. Like she knows that the things that I 
have chosen for myself are similar with her values. And the only reason that she is so amped up about having kids is simply because kids are just great. You know, they're just, they're just such a, uh, innocent and beautiful part of life. You know, there's just, um, so who wouldn't be excited to start that part of their journey? Um, but she's more, she's been without a doubt, the most supportive person I've met in my adult life. Um, she's my rock and, uh, and a real guidance for me. She, she is the spiritual, uh, free, like you, you think I lived like a very free person type of lifestyle. Chloe is a very free thinking person, uh, very accepting person. Um, and she has helped me, um, diverge from this very logical, uh, stance that I've always had in my life and open up to the possibility of the magic and the, the interesting, um, things that are intangible with words in life. And she's made my my life infinitely better as a result of that. Yeah. I think there shouldn't be much argument that there are unknown unknowns in the world and there's something beautiful in the unknown unknowns. Um, she's really shown me that. So Scott, tell me about wandering into greatness village. So how, how did you stumble across the CPG community? Well, I've always loved podcasts. They've been a big part of my life for many, many years. Um, and I had my two or three poker podcasts that I listened to that I had somehow stumbled into. I don't even know how. Um, and, uh, I don't know what made me start searching for more, but one day I started searching for more and I found your podcast and I went, <laughs> I went on a straight binge of CPG and I probably listened to like 50 episodes in a few weeks, just listening to all of your interviews and uh, all of the, uh, the different tactical Tuesdays. I love listening to John and it's been so cool. Like, you know, it's almost like an archive of his progression that you guys have built at this point in time. And he was already very good good um, when you guys started obviously or you wouldn't have had him as a co-host um and even coach uh uh sh shit i just forgot coach thomas coach thomas yeah. was on there before and, and it, he was a pleasure to listen to as well and um yeah so i just binged it and you know you were like at the end you know come join greatness village come join greatness village um that was the one thing that i was missing in my poker career i'd, I'd always loved studying poker and i'd done some other training before with different people and that training had taken me from a losing player to a mostly break-even player, especially at live poker. Um, but I'd played online pretty often uh, just for reps, you know, just low, uh, online low stakes, um, just to stay sharp and get some more hands in since live poker allows, you know, for so few hands per session. Um, and so I jumped in on Greatness Village and started with just the university channel where people were posting hand histories and I saw that there was tons of people who were talking about, and then, yeah, there was tons of people talking about having used the training material. And then also the podcast that you'd done with other villagers was really influential on me because I would listen to them and I'd be like, wow, these people have actually managed to learn to beat uh, online poker, which I was not doing. Like I was significantly worse at online poker than I was um, doing at live poker. Um, and I think there's some, you know, live intangibles that I'm better at picking up uh, that are important, uh, variables when I'm playing, um, that you just can't pick up online. Um, you have to have a much more, uh, like strategy and theoretical driven game online. And I really didn't know where to get that from. 
Um, and so the first thing I did was uh, pre-flop boot camp. And this was, you know, there's all, all these charts out there online that, you know, pre-flop charts or whatever. How do you memorize that? Like, I was just like, I don't know what to do with this information in order to memorize this in a way, you know, cause you're talking about, you know, three bet, four bet, five bet, you know, single raise pots from every position. Like it, it just was a lot. And so pre-flop camp you just you made it sound really good and and the other people the other villagers who had done it were like oh man it was just such a, a crucial part of the game for me um and so i signed up for pre-flop boot camp and at the time i was in school so i wasn't able to go through the actual motions with other people like you typically do where you do like a week-long thing but i still used the same structure that you had and i just was had to do it at my own pace when i had time outside of my own personal studies um, but my game just from pre-flop bootcamp went from break even to winning um, at just like low stakes, 25 NL online on ignition. Um, and so that was enough to convince me. Um, that was enough for me to start seeing like, wow, okay, you know, I can learn this too. Like I'm not devoid of the skill set required to be good at online poker. There's something that that I could do to better myself here. Um, and I find a lot of pleasure in studying too. I just just kind of who I am. I just find, again, it's just about the learning and the, and satisfying my own personal curiosities. And so next I picked up fish in a barrel. Um, and I think almost at the same time I picked up feeding frenzy uh, and I didn't even know, like with feeding frenzy, it was almost overwhelming at the time because I think I bought them both at the same time. And I would look from one to the other and not really understand how the strategy carried over. So I went back to fish in a barrel and I really, that was such a, another crucial, they're just like, each of them is like a key that opens the next door and the next door and the next door and the next door. And it's, it, you've done such a great job building a protocol that steps you through um, the basics to more advanced MDA driven strategies. Um, and it just helped so much to answer some of the questions that I had. When do you see that? How much do you see that? Why do you see that that much? Why do you check in these positions? Um, what sorts of board textures are advantageous when you're in position versus out of position? Like all of these things were answered uh, by the courses you had built. And it was like, um, it, it wasn't like a miracle because it that doesn't accurately describe it, but it was just like exactly what I was looking for. It was just exactly what I needed. It was answers to all these questions and it wasn't expensive and it, it, it paid itself back so quickly um, if you just took the time to work and, and apply these skills. And so then ultimately it culminated with me doing coaching work with you, which we're still in the middle of. And I was fortunate enough to grab four classes with you before you shut it down to wolves only. And uh, I've been very grateful to have that time um, together because I think it's really for me been nice to have some personal feedback not necessarily on the strategy portion but what i actually feel i've gotten the most out of from our work together uh, was more emotional um believe it or not and i don't know if, if like that resonates with you as to why but like for me there was some times like it's really difficult like playing poker is a game of imperfect information and like especially when you're trying to learn these strategies you make some mistakes in application and like it can be really difficult at times to implement um and you were always there to like zoom me back out and give me some perspective like when i'm stuck an inch from a problem and it seems like the biggest thing in the world because it covers my entire field of vision there were just times where you were able to 
metaphorically grab me by the shoulders and sit me back and say, hey, look at all of these other things. You know, this is all a part of the game too. And just because you're having this one problem doesn't mean that you're not progressing in all these other ways. And it doesn't mean that you won't also progress through this problem and get better. Um, and, and like, I think the best advice that I've gotten from you recently was just play with the mindset of a champion, like play like a champ, you know? And um, that really helped me a lot. Like it really helped my confidence um, in my game and it really changed a lot for me. Um, I almost immediately started winning after that session where you told me that I was kind of playing like scared, you know, I was playing scared poker, trying to mitigate variance by, um, by not getting myself into situations. And you said, you know, by trying to mitigate this variance, you're actually creating far more variance for yourself. Um, and that really struck true for me. And, and literally like my graph just started going up, you know, after, after that meeting and things have been going so much better. Um, so I'm just like a true believer in the products that you create. I know they're driven by data, which I do a lot of data analysis and data analytics in my schooling. It's something that I find to be uh, very interesting. And when you aggregate large amounts of data, you could find out some real truisms about people, um, which I know you're discovering as in your journey as a data scientist as well. Now that you've discovered that you're not only a poker player and a coach, but a data scientist, um, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. The things that you can discern when looking at large amounts of data, I'm convinced like now I see the power that Facebook has. I see the power that these platforms that have access to such large amounts of data, like it's just insane. The things that, you know, they can, that you can discover about your, your fellow man. Um, and I really appreciate all, all the kind words, by the way, I think it's important to, uh, it's important to have, uh, you know, a mentorish type figure that tells you like, it's okay. I think this is one part of it, right? Like sometimes you can try to find an issue or a problem with how you're playing, try to leak solve or ask yourself what's going wrong. And sometimes there's just nothing wrong. Sometimes you're just actually playing well and things are just not going the way that you would like them to go. Right. And I mean, that's such a hard thing to, uh, wrap your head around. And it's really difficult not to question everything like on existentially when you're, when things are not going well in poker, you know, it's, uh, the wolves go through this, um, high level players, all of my friends, I've gone through it many, many times, um, even deep into my career of like, my God, like, have I just forgotten everything? Um, so like having an outside source that can look at things more objectively and give you feedback because they care about you and they care about your development. They care about what's going on. I just think that it's just inv an invaluable tool for folks in most any industry, but poker specifically, just because of all the different feedback and the noise that is really hard to pick your way through if you're really close to the problem. And also if you're not a seasoned um, veteran of the game. I agree. And you know, one thing you've had DGAF on a few times um, and I know you guys are friends. And one thing that he talks about is just the incredible variance in poker. And I just think that most people don't truly understand the level of variance that you deal with in poker. Um, it is high and at times can be extremely high. Um, it, it, and variance is not something that humans naturally into it, especially given imperfect information. And so having a mentor, like you said, 
has just been, and this is kind of a thing throughout my whole life. Yushin was a mentor to me in glass blowing, and uh, I'm interning right now at a company. And the guy who gave me the job is a past professor of mine, and he and I had a really great relationship. And he's been kind of a mentor to me through business and in college. And you, that that was what I sought when I sought coaching with you. I was looking for somebody who, who could understand me. Right? It's not really about like, I have to do the work. That's the way it always is. It doesn't matter who your mentor is. It doesn't matter what the industry is. You have to go out and do the work. Nobody can hand you ability. It's just not the way that ability is derived. But what I needed and what I've always needed in my life is just somebody who can look at problems that I'm facing from this outside perspective and offer me a bit better or a bit more clearer perspective than I'm seeing in that moment. And you've been nothing but that. It's been incredible. It's been a really... Um, it's been a really valuable thing, man. Like, I don't know if I've ever had the chance to tell you that, like when we're in our sessions or not, but like you've made a huge impact, hugely positive impact on my life. And it really made me discover how much I love poker um, because it's not really about the money for me. Um, like I'm deriving my money from other sources. It's about the intellectual curiosity and you've just fostered that in such a great way. Um, and you've always been a really positive person, which is something that I really appreciate because I try to be very positive um you know when, whenever possible and so yeah just thank you man like you've been a really really important part of my journey in poker and so that's really really appreciated that's that's very humbling and very gracious and you're very welcome and hope to be you know seeing a lot more of you over the next you know the the next years to come as you're you, you go further and further into your poker journey um so now, I guess let's uh, let's hit some lightning round questions, and then we'll we'll go on break. Um, sure. So, if you could gift all poker players one book to read, doesn't have to necessarily be about poker. What book would you choose, and why? Snap answer: two different books. First one is "Fooled by Randomness" by Nassim Taleb, which I know Duncan will appreciate. Uh, yes, and, very much. Uh, yeah, I love listening to you and Duncan, by the way. Philosophical Friday hits home super hard for me as an economist and a philosopher. Um, and uh, the other one is the mental game of poker, which has always been the tough part for me. It's not executing strategy. It's mitigating variance in my own mind. So yeah, those it, two would be easy answers for me. Yeah, I mean, a lot of poker is this... I don't, I don't know about anybody listening in the audience, but how I'm constructed is that if I'm playing a game, I will, I'd never concede until all hope is lost, until it is plainly obvious there is no path to victory here, in which case, okay, like I'll concede. And I think that like poker is, I I'm well equipped to venture into the world of poker because like that's what it is, right? Like you're, you're constantly searching for paths to victory. You're constantly um, being tested. Your mental... Uh, emotional resolve, like you have to love competing. You have to, in some sick way, um, be able to get punched in the gut and get back up and play the next hand. And, and like, especially if you're a pro, you've really got no choice. You have to get punched in the gut and move on and play the next hand. And I think that like, yeah, it just, it can be a great forger of human beings and resilience and, um, although it brings out the worst in us sometimes, it, it can also bring out the best in us as well. And I'm just like, yeah, I, I genuinely love 
poker and competing. And um, so next question here, if you could put up a billboard, everybody's got to drive past on the way to the casino. What does Mr. Sade's billboard say? It just says, be kind. You know, we're all going through so much. Every one of us is humans and the human journey is just so taxing and difficult to begin with that I just, I'm a big advocate of just trying to be kind and be understanding of one another and um, know that things are not personal. You know, when somebody treats you in a way that you don't appreciate, chances are it has much more to do with what they're going through than what you're going through. Um, so I just advocate for us all to try to treat each other kindly and with as much respect and care as we can muster. Yeah. What's your big goal in poker? My big goal in poker, my big goal in poker is to just continue enjoying it. You know, I don't have any particular stakes I want to reach. I mean, I, I enjoy moving up through the stakes and I've been able to accomplish some of that through your tutelage and uh, having using your programs and stuff, which I'm really you know, excited about. And that does make me happy when I get to tell people that, oh, I got to, you know, go up to a new stake, you know, and now I'm rolled for the next stake or whatever. But um, I just enjoy it. Like I've said a couple of times for the intellectual curiosity of it, you know, there's just something to be learned and some new thing to try to understand. And so to just continue to enjoy it, like as long as I'm having fun doing it, then I've reached my goals. Yeah, it's, it's a great game for exploring your curiosity. I'm almost two decades in and still exploring my curiosity in many different facets as I go about training the wolves. So yeah, it, it never ends. Basically, if you have a thirst for pursuing something and you're a very curious human poker, poker is a good, good spot to land on. Uh, Absolutely. Any, anything else that you'd like to leave with the CPG listener before we shut it down? I just encourage anybody who's listening to this and hasn't joined greatness village to jump in there and join it. Like not only have I met just some cool people online and had some questions answered, but like a few of us have even started a study group that meets weekly. And like, I've met some people who I genuinely enjoy. Um, one of them, I might even get to meet in real person in person in Hawaii. He lives out there in Hawaii and my wife and I are going to go next year. So like, there's a real opportunity to meet like-minded folks there who are genuine people. So I just encourage everybody to jump in there and, and, uh, and try the products and meet the people. It's really worth it. I wouldn't tell you otherwise. Yeah. Greatnessvillage.com. Uh, and Scott is counterculture. So you can believe, you can believe in it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm contrarian by nature. Yeah, contrarian right? by nature. He's not gonna, not gonna push something that he doesn't believe in. Um, good stuff, man. Really grateful to have you on the program really grateful getting to know you better over this past year or so and look forward to seeing more of you in the village and uh talk to you soon man thanks brad thanks for listening to chasing poker greatness you can subscribe on apple podcasts or on your favorite podcast app go to chasingpokergreatness.com to get the newsletter join the greatness village community book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.